Hello, hello. Welcome to this, the newest episode of Too Long, Don't Listen, which has last become a spin-off of a spin-off, ultimately. My name is Sean Peter Budge, and I'm here to discuss Spider-Man No Way Home, which has made its wide release uh, this weekend, or as of yesterday, if you're listening to this on the day of release, uh, Thursday the 16th of December. Um, just off the top, I will be in full spoilers for this particular chat about Spider-Man. Uh, there's no possible way to talk about this film without going into spoilers. So if you want to preserve the cinema experience, uh, please stop. Shut this episode off, put it on pause, come back to it later, um, because there is lots to enjoy if you are unspoiled. By the same token, if you have seen the film uh, and you would like to know my thoughts, please do continue to listen and absolutely get in touch with me um, to give me you know, your impression of, of this particular film because there's lots and lots and lots to unpack, most of it quite good, uh, some of it you know, not quite as good maybe as it otherwise might have been, um, but as we'll, we'll go into as the episode goes on, um, I'm not sure how good of a movie this is, having walked out of the cinema, I'm not sure how good it was, but the one thing that it was, was incredibly satisfying. Um, it was so much fun to watch, and I think that may paper over a few otherwise significant cracks that, in a curious twist, ultimately don't end up meaning anything or mattering very much or affecting your ability to enjoy the film for what it is and what it's trying to be. So uh, do bear with me as we go through all the points and discuss all the ebbs and flows, ups and downs and the like. And, and uh, as I said, if you have seen the film or once you do see the film, please do get in touch. Let me know your thoughts. I'd be really keen to hear them. Uh, Will and I will um, discuss this as well on the next episode of the Weekly Watch List, uh, by which time Will will have seen the film. Uh, hopefully that's in the next week or so. Uh, and it'll be really good to get his thoughts on the on the film as well. So we wait for that. But in this sort of longer form devoted episode. Um, I can kind of stretch my legs a bit and, and really go into uh, a bit of the history of what, how this comes to happen, why it comes to happen in this guise, uh, and then some machinations as to what it might mean, what it, what it gets right, what are the longer term, you know, um, benefits or problems that it creates. So we'll go through that uh, as the episode goes on. Um, obviously, this is the third standalone Spider-Man film starring Tom Holland and it's probably the highest profile release of the year maybe uh, No Time to Die potentially but um, th this is potentially the biggest film in the pandemic era uh, it'll, it'll almost certainly become the highest grossing film um, in the pandemic era if box office projections are anything to go by it's been breaking records left right and center so uh, that's speaks to both the appetite of the audience to go and see this particular film as well as the appetite of an audience who's been denied big, big tentpole pictures and the opportunity in a lot of markets to actually go to the movies. So there's probably a few things at play there that are generating you know, the significant buzz and foot traffic and level of interest that this film is enjoying. Um, you know, when it comes to Spider-Man, clearly and truly an A-tier intellectual property you know no matter what the medium is tv shows in the past you know, a couple of versions of different cartoons have been enormously successful video games um you know as well have been enormously important um you know the the, the really recent sony uh games critically acclaimed and, and absolutely outstanding speaking both to the the quality of the the games themselves as well as 
you know, the interest of the character engenders and creates in the marketplace. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the movies, which always move the needle. You know, it's cut through spans generations, and that's an important distinction there. It spans generations, and that's why this film, which is the eighth standalone Spider-Man film in 19 years, and you can you can work out he's, you know, he's been in Civil War, two other Avenger films, so he's been in 11 movies in 19 years, major, you know, big Hollywood studio pictures, 11 films in 18 years. There's a reason for that, because the character's got a lot of cut-through, a lot of recognition, and is very well liked, loved. So there's a reason he, he pops up so regularly. What we've got here with Tom Holland, obviously, as I said, is a third of you know his his first trilogy. There's some word that he'll come back and do another couple at least, um, but the first arc of this character's journey now is completed, um, as per his introduction in Civil War. This is feels as though sort of a little bit of an underline, but at the same time, and you know, a dot 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 as to to what might happen next. Um, so I think it's sort of important when talking about this particular movie to sort of talk about the background of, of how we get to this point in time. And to do that, we actually we have to go back quite a few years, you know, really. So the rights to Spider-Man are actually a really fascinating story, the rights to the, you know, the film, film rights um, of the character. You know, and, and, and probably the most interesting aspect of that was way back in, you know, the late 80s slash early 90s, I think 91, James Cameron had written what was, uh, it's not a script, it's, they call it a scriptment, it's like a, it's like a 50 to 60 page document that's more than an outline, but not a full script, so he'd written that, and there was just lots of litigation, to be brutally honest, there was just lots of fighting, and who owns this, and who owns that, and who can bring the film to the screen, and how does it come about, and what does it look like, and, and the like, um, which went on for, you know, clearly the better part of a decade. Uh, didn't come to pass. Um, the company that originally was going to produce the film went into insolvency. They were bought out by MGM. MGM thought they had a claim to the Spider-Man rights, which they sort of didn't quite really in the end. Marvel ended up selling those rights, um, believing that they had lapsed, to Columbia, who was obviously owned by Sony Pictures. And in a really funny, sort of quirky um, sidebar. In the late 90s, the dispute between MGM and Sony, in which both parties claimed rights to elements of James Bond and Spider-Man, they ultimately reached this really quirky compromise where Sony relinquished their interest in James Bond, MGM relinquished their interest in Spider-Man, effectively meaning we got a trade that saw both parties gain solar exclusive rights to one of the properties as opposed to sort of compromised rights or partial rights to both. So there was this interesting thing where MGM got to continue making James Bond movies and Sony got the sole rights to go and do Spider-Man. Funnily, Sony ended up doing distribution on James Bond a bit later on. They do four films and you know most of them very, very successful at the time. Um, but tied into all this is the fact that Marvel, for quite a while there, in the, the early to mid-90s and, and a little bit after that, they were virtually bankrupt. Um, and as a result of that, seeking a quick injection of cash, they basically went to sell off the film rights, which was a burgeoning industry, which was, you know, you, you want to buy the rights to a popular known IP, and what we do with those rights, we'll figure out later. Fox bought up big. They bought X-Men, they bought Daredevil, Fantastic Four, you know, properties 
that have since returned home following Disney's acquisition of Fox. Universal bought up The Incredible Hulk, uh, a deal that since um, lapsed. And was it New Line? New Line might have had it initially. The Ang Lee film. I'm just trying to remember. Someone else had Hulk, which lapsed and returned to Marvel, resulting in the 2008 film with uh, Edward Norton. And crucially, Sony and Columbia landed Spider-Man. And to retain the rights to this deal, you basically just need to continue making movies. You know, the deal doesn't lapse. So long as you have got a film in production within a particular time frame, at all times, you just retain the rights in perpetuity. So in the case of, you know, um, I think a Hulk was a case of they just said, oh, we're not interested in doing another one, so you can just have them back, is, is basically what they said. They said, look, we're not going to push the boat out and try to do another Hulk movie, so you can have them and do with them what you want. And Marvel took them back and were able to spin it into a, a you know a new iteration and a new character. So when they launched Marvel Studios to produce both Iron Man and The Incredible Hulk, which were released in 2008, their sort of ambitious medium-term plan was to do what hadn't been done on the big screen before, which is, which is curious in its own way. And that's a serialised, multi-character build, you know, across multiple films, to a team-up like they do in the comics. Further than that, it was to create cameos like they did in the comics, where the city of New York, or wherever it might be, is inhabited by any number of superheroes who cross each other's paths and pop up in each other's comics, and that's just part of the fun of it. There's no budget, there's no constraints in that way, so they can cross-pollinate and dip in and out of each other's stories as necessary, ultimately building relationships with one another and building up towards the big payoff... um, blow-off, if you will, which, you know, in, in this case is obviously your Avengers movies, finishing with Endgame. Um, the issue, obviously, is that they didn't have the rights to any of their A-tier characters. X-Men, X-Men are a big deal, didn't have it. Fantastic Four, huge deal, didn't have it. Spider-Man, didn't have the rights. All of these characters when these big conflicts in the comics happen, they're always central to the drama because they're big, big characters and they're much loved and um, they've got a lot of a lot of cut through in, in the, the Marvel world. But they couldn't use them because they didn't own them, the rights, the film rights. So what they were able to do, not really enough is made of this now, you know, some 13 years after the fact. They didn't have those big names. So necessity is the mother of invention. And on the back of Robert Downey Jr., and his performance in Iron Man is extraordinary in the aftermath, they really sort of of spun straw into gold. They turned a cast of lesser-known commodities into a juggernaut, taking these minor-ish characters, still very good characters, but minor-ish characters with not a lot of cut-through, not a lot of massive worldwide, you know, uh, recognition or appeal, and they turned into the biggest film property in the world. But they always wanted Spider-Man back because Spider-Man is maybe their biggest character. Probably. Can they get him? How do they get him? How do they weave him in? I think they were always open to the idea, but Sony just weren't. So come 2007, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films have have come and gone. Um, Spider-Man 3 is released that year and is very much a full stop on on all of that, at least uh, outwardly. Outwardly, it looked that way from the audience's point of view, but attempts to get a fourth Sam Raimi Spider-Man film were 
ongoing and eventually ran aground. There's some storyboards out there. There's some scripting. They're going to have the Vulture, and then John Malkovich was going to play the Vulture, and it just clearly didn't end up happening. But they were also interested somewhat in getting backdoor entry into this nascent MCU, what it's becoming, because from their point of view, we don't have to produce the whole movie, we don't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, but we can license our character maybe, get a cut of the profits, very technical stuff, how does it all work? Marvel didn't really want to do that, because they were very protective, quite understandably, of what they were building and what they wanted it to be, and I think they were always a bit um, sceptical of what Sony's intentions were, and even to this day, Sony's intentions are a bit strange and skew if they're sort of launched this satellite competing world of Spider-Man characters which does and doesn't kind of but kind of doesn't exist within the MCU framework or does it exist within Raimi's Spider-Man framework or they're trying to now play off this multiverse theory which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, so they reboot. They get Andrew Garfield into the lead in 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man. Mark Webb directs it on the back of... Um, uh, 500 Days of Summer, which is obviously an excellent movie. He gets the, the go-ahead to make that particular movie, and it's pretty successful. I think it makes like $800 million. So it shows that there's an appetite for this character in no matter the guise that he exists in. But they still are kind of keen to be in the MCU. They want to be at that table. So one of the really fascinating aspects of this whole journey to this particular point in time is that Oh, geez, what year was it? It's quite a few years ago now, but there was a big email leak of um, Sony Pictures emails. And, and one of the most interesting leaks to come out of that whole situation was some correspondence between former Sony head uh, Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige, who was sort of acting as a kind of informal, unofficial consultant on a few of these projects. And he would watch these Spider-Man films as obviously you know, Marvel's bigwig, and he would provide some feedback, and some of the feedback he provided was pretty, pretty, pretty full on. Not wrong, but very forthright about how the character was being handled, how it was tonally being presented. Andrew Garfield's performance, not, not critical of Andrew Garfield, the actor, but just critical of how his performance tracked, you know, the highs and lows of it, and the emotion maybe being a bit overly earnest and a bit over the top in, at times, and then the quirkiness being too far the other way. So he provided this really interesting feedback to, to Pascal that in the end, that was for Amazing Spider-Man 2 in particular, which was 2014, which in the end leads to the 2015 deal that sees Sony abandon plans for an Amazing Spider-Man 3, which was going to lead to a Sinister Six movie and their own spin-offs and all that like, to reboot the character again but do it the way Marvel wanted to do it. So Sony would dis distribute the film, Marvel would sort of effectively produce it, and it would be integrated into the MCU. And that obviously led to his appearance in Civil War, which led to Homecoming, which led to the Avengers movies, um, Far From Home, and obviously now No Way Home, which is, uh, as I said, culminating that initial kind of run for the character. But, in the... So I suppose what I'm trying to say, all the deals sort of had gotten reworked and re revisited and redone, and at one point it looked as though Marvel had basically pushed back so hard on this idea of what Sony were going to be able to backdoor into the MCU or live off 
from the MCU of having this kind of strange, quirky, satellite sort of adjunct series. And Marvel was sort of going, we don't, we don't really want that. We just want Spider-Man. We don't want any of your other characters or movies existing within this world. We don't want you using Tom Holland's Spider-Man in your own little spin-offs that you're going to tell people take place in this world, that we have no interest taking place in this world and affecting the rest of our characters and the rest of our plot lines. So it looked for a little while like they would lose the character. And that all came to a head. Allegedly, legendarily, Tom Holland rang uh, Bob Iger, the ex-chair uh, of Disney, and basically said, look, please do a deal. Just do a deal. Figure this out. And fortunately for the property, for the actors, for everyone involved, they were able to figure it out. And he was able to return and um, re-up the deal, if you will, and continue in the MCU, which is great because he has sort of become the heart of this whole property now. He's, He's Peter Parker is very much at the core, you know, emotionally, um as to what this next phase and phases of the MCU need to be. And I can totally see, you know, a time where the the 10-odd-year build, 9-11-year build for the big Tony Stark send-off is ultimately recreated with our Spider-Man, a, a young character we saw at the age of 16 and probably say goodbye to at the age of 28 or maybe 30 in however many films' time. But he'll get this moment, this sacrificial moment or fairy tale ending or that Steve Rogers got or whatever it might be, but he'll he'll get that moment and when he gets that moment it'll mean as much as Black Widow's death and uh, Tony Stark's death and Steve Rogers send off, etc. He's building towards that. His arc is that. Um, and that's due in no no small part to Holland's charisma and the way he presents the character and he's he's really, really good in the role. Um and the flow on from that again, you know, mentioning what Sony were trying to do with their own spin-off films. They've obviously got Venom, which has had two films. They've got uh, Morbius, um, which comes out, uh, is it February next year? Which is a, a film that takes place in a Spider-Man universe. What Spider-Man universe? I'm not 100% sure. It uh, features um, Adrian Toomes, who was obviously the Vulture, played by Michael Keaton in Homecoming. So there's, it's, it's a bit quirky that they've done this weird thing and... Aaron Taylor-Johnson will be playing Craven the Hunter in his own standalone film, which um, is an interesting idea. I'm not totally against it because he's a cool character, but he does need to be fighting or tracking or hunting Spider-Man. So how they're going to do that, I'm I'm not 100% sure. But where this all comes to a head here, this long-winded, potentially nonsensical um, rambling of mine, is that when the MCU mentioned informally, ultimately, as a red herring, the multiverse in the last Spider-Man film. They started introducing it as a concept and the whispers began. The whispers began that could there be a world or could there be a reality in which Sony get what they want, Marvel compromise, and the end product is a Spider-Man film that features Tom Holland, Tobey Maguire, and Andrew Garfield, these three generations of Spider-Man, all on the screen together. And the multiverse creates that reality. It creates that possibility. So ultimately, their involvement was the worst kept secret in Hollywood. Um, they do return. They are in this movie. And yes, it is very, very good fun. Uh, which is just as well, because like I reckon, based on the reaction of the, the audience I was in, I was very excited to see them as well. But I think people would have rioted if after all the build-up they weren't in the movie. Um, so like I said, worst kept secret. 
but a bit of a relief in the end that you're sitting there and you go, oh, geez, they are in it. Thank God. Jeez, thank God they're in this film because I'd sort of walked into this expecting them to be in the movie and if they're not in the movie, I'm not sure what I'm going to make of this. Um, so obviously when, when all their villains were turning up and being cast and being confirmed, it was only going to make sense for the Spider-Man actors to return and they have done so. Obviously, we have to, or we uh, we can't possibly not talk about um, uh, Into the Spider-Verse, which has probably got a, a big role to play in this as well. 2018, I believe, that was released from memory. Um, and far from just a brilliant movie, absolutely outstanding film in its own right. But again, whet the appetite for this concept and showed people at Sony or Marvel or whoever might be a bit reticent showed them it could work, how it could work, and then more importantly, that the audience want it and crave it and love this stuff. And when you've got characters and actors who are prepared to return and prepared to, you know, put on the suit again and mug to the camera a little bit and give the audience what they want, that's very potent, it's very powerful. What I do find fascinating, actually, is that for so long, the the, the comic book you know, hero team-up which had been commonplace, commonplace, sorry, on the page forever and a day, wasn't pursued on the screen. It was really weird. Like, Batman versus Superman came the closest in the in the mid to late 90s. Um, Burton, Tim Burton was going to make a Superman film and uh, uh, Michael Keaton's Batman was going to cameo in it. Warner Brothers really, really heavily pursued a Batman versus Superman property with um, Akiva Goldsman, uh, who had written Batman Forever, Batman and Robin, would ultimately win an Oscar for writing A Beautiful Mind, um, writing a script, which was a bit messy, a bit all over the place, but Wolfgang Peterson was going to direct. He was coming off stuff like, I think he'd done Troy at that point. He hadn't done, uh, no, he wouldn't have done Poseidon Adventure just yet. Maybe he hadn't done Troy yet. Maybe he treated Troy instead. But the point being, that was close-ish to a goer. Now it's just par for the course those big team-ups and the big cameos, which we'll talk about in a moment. But having done all that now, the next logical step, the next thing for them to potentially do, having resisted doing that for so long, is this multiverse idea. They've now got a a situation where those big, big characters, Spider-Man and Batman, Superman, that so many actors have played these characters now that you can do a multiverse. You resisted teaming them up for so long and the unintended benefit of that is now you've got like a, a few of these characters have got three or four actors you can dig back into and present on screen as various versions of those characters that each have their own fan base, that each have a bit of market recognition, that each play to a particular era or you know, um, generation of fan. Uh, DC have done it with their you know Crisis series in their um, WB or uh, CW, sorry, TV shows, which had The Flash and... Um, Ezra Miller's Flash guest starred on that and Brandon Routh was in a Crisis series and, and there's lots and lots and lots of examples but they're obviously doing it on the big screen next year Michael Keaton's returning as Batman in The Flash which I'm about as excited about as I could be about anything um, cannot wait to see that he's my Batman and uh, based on how I responded to a few of the big key emotional beats in Spider-Man I probably won't be able to get through the Flash when Keats turns up as Batman and we see him on the big screen in the... not even in the suit, but just on the big screen as Bruce Wayne for the first time since 1992. I think it'll be a really, really lovely moment. Um, So basically the plot, we'll we'll sort of go through that a little bit. Like I said, full spoilers are incoming. 
the film picks up immediately after uh, 2019's Far From Home. Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio has blown Peter Parker's cover, leaking to the Daily Bugle, which is now reimagined as a rogue news outlet operating online on like a YouTube kind of channel, which is which is really clever, really brilliantly um, uh, imagined there, which is good fun. With Peter Parker's life and the lives of everyone close to him impacted by the reveal of his identity and the authorities looking to pin the nefarious acts and the murder of Mysterio on him, Peter seeks the help of Doctor Strange, played of course by Benedict Cumberbatch, asking the now quirkily identified former Sorcerer Supreme if there's anything that can be done to restore his anonymity. Strange confirmed that there is a spell that could do the trick, but it's a very delicate, very final. Uh, and Peter, of course, is very chatty, as we've known uh, or come to know him as. The spell will make the world forget Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but everybody will forget his best friend Ned, his Aunt May, Happy Hogan, who's John Favreau's fantastic as Happy Hogan, and crucially, MJ. You know, he's... Uh, his new girlfriend and the love of his life and all, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a constant in his life, you know, whether it be comics, cartoons and the like. Um, they will all have no memory. Nothing. They won't remember any moment they've shared with him. They won't remember his, anything about him. Wise across to this, and the spell is obviously compromised. We've seen the trailers. The final incantation does what intended, but with a significant issue. All of a sudden, at Peter's behest, that these people will remember who he is, Everyone from any time who's ever known that Peter Parker is Spider-Man is thrown through a void, through a glitch in the multiverse, into the MCU. What that does is throw Alfred Molina's Doctor Octopus, Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborn, Jamie Foxx's Electro, Reese Farns' Kurt Connors, and Thomas Hayden Church's Flint Marco all into the mix, with all of them harbouring a degree of ill will towards a Peter Parker that they've never met. Following an initial skirmish with Dr. Octopus, and with the help of Dr. Strange, the confused and displaced villains are rounded up ahead of a return to their dimensions, or universes, until, of course, Peter is forced to come to terms with the reality that their return will result in their deaths. Ever the do-gooder, he believes he can help them and send them back to their own universes in a manner that won't uh, turn out that way. And, of course, things go awry. The villains don't all agree on how things should play out, or if they want to play out, and following a significant loss, Peter is more alone and isolated than he's ever been before until the arrival of two very familiar faces. Sorry, until the arrival of two very familiar faces, as far as the audience is concerned, get him back on his feet. Now, three generations of Spider-Man band together in a cross-generational showdown to return order to our universe and the multiverse. So, did I like it? I mentioned off the top, I don't really know. I don't really know if it's a good movie. Not sure. But what works about it are dead set home runs. The plot, which I've just sort of ham fistedly described, is largely incidental. Having recapped it, I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter. It's there because the film needs to have a plot. But this is all about, this whole film is all about the audience's relationship with and emotional reaction to their youth. And what the film does brilliantly is interact with and play within its own canons. It's now got three Spider-Mans to play with, three sets of you know film franchises to play with and refer to and refer back to and poke fun at. Sorry. And whilst it is a bit clunky at times and, and it hits the second act speed bump pretty significantly, um, following a, a really positive start, 
there are moments of fan service that are, are they're about as good as it gets. And it means someone, if you're wanting to be forgiving and you're not really wanting to kind of ask too many questions about what happens in the plot and why does it happen and why do I care and does it really work or does it really serve the film, etc. There's so many little moments like that that ultimately come along and make the whole viewing experience worthwhile. You know, I'm not always super convinced that the very serialized storytelling format that Marvel have um, adopted over the last 13 years now, um, since Iron Man, is always what's best for the series. Sometimes it absolutely is, and I'll go through some examples shortly. Sometimes it absolutely is, but then sometimes these films almost end up becoming two-hour trailers for the next film, you know, which uh, the some of the aftermath of this will be covered in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, um, which comes out next March, I think, directed by Sam Raimi, funnily enough. And, and just a minor gripe too, like the Marvel TV shows do this as well. It's really annoying. They've actually become kind of more comic booky than any comic book movie in the sense that every episode of like Hawkeye, for instance, the only part of the episode worth watching is the final in the first 15 seconds, that's the only time anything interesting happens. The 15 seconds that before the credits roll to set up the next episode, and then the 15 seconds after, you know, the, the next episode starts, that's the payoff. It's a little bit, you know, like the classic Batman, you know, will they escape? Tune in tomorrow, and it's can be frustrating because you're like, just watch 45 minutes, and it was about cumulatively a minute of interesting storytelling that really significantly advanced the plot here, and it's all to get me to tune in again. If you just make a good show, I'll tune in again. Interesting, well-acted, well-paced, stuff happening. Like, it's sort of frustrating in that. I don't know if I'm the only one there. Um, another point, of course, is just sometimes I find the criticism of fan service to be a bit weird, and this film is, as Endgame was, and a lot of the Marvel films and shows are, very fan service lots of Easter egg, lots of tips of the hat, nods of the head. It's fun. When it's when it's good, it's great. You know, don't be scared. Studios shouldn't be scared of giving fans what they know they want because that's how we end up in situations like <coughs> Disney making sequels to Star Wars and not having a single scene in which Luke, Han and Leia share some kind of experience all in the same room together, talking to one another. We're going to make a sequel to Return of the Jedi and we're going to get Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher... Harrison Ford all back and they're not going to share a single second of screen time. Why? Because they wanted to su- surprise us. Are you? We know that you think you want that so we're going to give you something else instead. And you're like, no, just give us what we want. We want to see those three on the screen together. Make it happen. You're going to spend 250 fucking $300 million on this movie. Put those three in a scene together because you know what happens? They kill off Han and then Carrie Fisher dies and they've killed off fucking Luke Skywalker as well. And you're going, what a missed opportunity. You had a layup. You had a layup. And you fucking missed it. Pack of idiots. Marvel's stock and trade is easily accessible, crowd-pleasing, blockbuster fare. It might be cotton candy, but they've redefined what going to the film, uh, the movies, and leaving satisfied means. They are almost the new age Lucas and Spielberg from way back in the 70s and 80s, you know, the classic Indiana Jones, if adventure has a name, it's Indiana Jones. They're almost like that. Not all of their films are outstanding, but they're pretty fun to watch on the whole. 
they're pretty well made. They might be a bit more lightweight now than they have been. Maybe that's just fatigue on our end, but you know they do exist in a pretty tried-and-true formula now. But what they did was seismic. Everyone now wants a cinematic universe. Everybody. The Universal Cinematic Universe wanted to do the monsters with Frankenstein and all that crap that no one cared about. Dracula and the Invisible Man. Everyone was like, no, don't worry about that. Don't really care about that. No, don't do it. And they kept trying to like work on it. We were like, don't. Stop. Stop it now. We don't want it. They changed the way cinema was produced and presented. Now they may be just a victim of that. I don't know. So... Um, ultimately, we'll go to the chicken salads now, which is pros, pros and cons. Chicken salads mean good. I thought the first act was as strong um, as pretty much the whole of Homecoming. And it was really punchy and really fun. It sort of got back to to what made Homecoming um, such a great such a great film. Um, you know, uh, Tom Holland, as I said earlier, is such a charismatic lead. He spoke recently about wanting his Peter Parker to be this generation's Marty McFly, and he, he, yeah, it's a great. It's a great starting point. It's a great comparison for him to make because, in a lot of ways, he is he's he's just a really magnetic, you know, figure. He he plays the role with the right amount of sincerity and the right amount of naivety and the right amount of you know growing confidence and enthusiasm. He, he's excellent in the role and uh, really drives a a really strong sort of first act of the movie. I mentioned earlier that they're kind of getting more comic booky now, which is something I do like. It's it is interesting to observe, though. It's all part of the ebb and flow of the way that these films are presented on screen. You know, the genre gets really, really silly for a while, and then it kind of pulls back, and someone goes, "No, we want it to be serious." Like Chris Nolan came in, and then everyone wanted a gritty, grounded, realistic reboot, and they kind of did away with a lot of fantastical elements of these films because they've got to be serious and everything needs to have a legitimate, plausible explanation. Like, or Bruce Wayne can just turn up with a crazy Batmobile. Where do you get it from? doesn't matter. Who cares? I don't care. looks good. And that's the only explanation the audience needs is it doesn't matter where it came from. He's Batman. Let's go with it. So we're kind of now going back into that more silly comic booky stuff, which is good fun. And one of the interesting elements of that is you get some. You get those cameos. You get that cross pollination. You get Benedict uh, Cumberbatch. You know, Doctor Strange is, has a relatively, um, you know, significant role. Uh, um, uh, Wong, who of course is uh, Doctor Strange's offside, he obviously has a cameo in this, as he did in Shang Chi. Interestingly, Charlie Cox is Matt Murdock or Daredevil from the old uh, Netflix TV show. Makes his appear. Makes a very small appearance as, as uh, Matt Murdock, officially reintroducing him into the MCU. Um, those shows did exist in the timeline, but were never acknowledged as, as doing so on the big screen. Curiously, does this affect Hawkeye? Obviously, Kingpin has turned up in the most recent episode of Hawkeye, Kingpin being Daredevil's uh, main adversary and played, of course, by Vincent D'Onofrio. So I do wonder if Murdoch will appear in Hawkeye as the season goes on. You sort of think he probably has to, to be honest. So that'll, that'll be cool, but that's something I really, really liked. I really liked that they're playing with that who might drop in element, which was always a, a staple on the page of a comic book, who might drop in panel to panel. They all inhabit the same city in the same world, so lean on that. Get them involved. Um, we'll go into the Spider-Mans. I mentioned Tom Holland. He's just great in the role. 
he's the heart of the MCU now. He carries the weight of that effortlessly. Um, He's very comfortable in the role of Peter Parker now. He's really, really good to watch. He's um, really can't speak highly enough of him. He's he's really, really strong. The other is Andrew Garfield. Devotees of his two Spider-Man films maintain he's the best. He's the best Peter Parker, the best Spider-Man. He's not giving his critics anything to work with here. Because he's great. You know, maybe I've long ever held the opinion that Garfield took the role that he had to take at that stage of his career. He was, you know, coming off um, a bit of a breakout role in the social network and he, he got the opportunity to front a big-budget, um, high-profile superhero property during a bit of a renaissance of such films. Had to take that opportunity and did pretty well with the, the material. Don't make no bones about it. He certainly played it differently to Tobey Maguire. It was a, there was a massive point of difference there, which was great. But I think it was just the right opportunity at the wrong time or, you know, the right place at the wrong time for, for, for Andrew. And it just didn't quite work for, for any number of factors. Sony's, you know, disorganisation uh, behind the camera and trying to do too much and losing sight of what they were doing with his films and the audience just losing interest by virtue of that. His range in this, his emotional range, is absolutely superb. You know, he's a terrific actor, we all know that now. In, in the years since doing these films, he's carved out a great little niche for himself. Um, and he was a really credible actor. And, and he's always, like I said, I use the word charisma, he's certainly got that. He's, he can be fun, he can be silly, um, he can turn on the angst, he can turn on the heartbreak, Um He's got so many strings to his bow. And here, he's sort of allowed to be everything you need the character to be. You know, when he needs to be earnest and when he needs to be emotional and serious, nails it. When he needs to provide some quirkiness, nails it. He's absolutely fantastic um, and has some really, really terrific moments. Tobey Maguire was great. Look, he's as comfortable um, as you'd expect him to be as the elder statesman. He does have a huge, huge role in the film. Um, but he does a really nice job with the material that he has of being the slightly older, more travelled you know, version of this of this person. And we get some nice little winks and nods to how his life has played out um, post Spider-Man Three, and which is really heartening and and really nice. And for somebody who grew up you know, watching those films, and they were my Spider-Man films as a kid, um, it was really really good. It was really great to see him back in the role and looking like he enjoyed it and stretching his legs and um, being really prepared to to get a bit silly with it and, and to have a lot of fun with it. Um, he was really, really good to watch. Their, di- their dynamic, the three of them together, bouncing off one another is absolutely brilliant. Um, they've got a lot of fantastic little exchanges. They give each other a bit of a pep talk before the sort of climactic showdown, which is just brilliant. You know, they question one another about their own interactions in their own universes with different people and different villains and sort of giving each other really wonderfully self-aware um, sort of stories about dealing with this guy and this guy and he was this and this guy was like a giant, he was in a giant rhino suit and they're sort of just nodding like knowingly to one another, going, this is silly, but I get where you're coming from. I can, yeah, I understand that, which was really good fun. Um, there's a bit where uh, Tom Holland's character, you know, mentions that he was in the Avengers and Toby Maguire asks, "Looks that a band?" You know, it was really quite, quite know- knowingly winking at the camera and the audience. It was just fantastic, and that's what these films were all about. Really, really good fun. Um, they're all sort of fully aware of how silly it is and, and having having a great time. 
Uh, both Alfred Molina and uh, Willem Dafoe are just having an absolute ball here, particularly Willem Dafoe. He is he, he is uh, off the charts, chewing the scenery, having a blast. He's really, really great. Um, you can see that he probably didn't need to, be, need to be asked too many times to come back when they said, you go, we're going to let you off the leash. And he went, beautiful, let's do it. Molina, too, um, has a lot of fun with his role. He, he's really good. Um, there's a slightly conflicted Doc Ock. You know, the way they play that out is really interesting. Um, and more than that, actually, this film does a really good job of making um, Andrew Garfield's villains better or, you know, r- richer uh, than they were the first time around. And in the case of the Raimi villains, giving them sort of a, an evolved perspective. You know, Doc Ock, is, his, his rationale has changed a little bit and his, his worldview has changed a little bit and they, they give him some growth, which is, which is really good fun. Um, the one thing I, I really, really enjoyed, and I mentioned it just before, was that the, the plot of the film is incidental. It doesn't really matter. The plot is there and exists to get us towards these little payoff beats. And that's something that Marvel have been just past masters of for so long. They earn these beats. You know, DC, when they were trying to build their, their Zack Snyder films, in a lot of ways were trying to run before they could crawl. You know, that these emotional beats that underpin pretty much everything in the movies and, and the audience's relationship with the characters, they just didn't earn them because they didn't put in the work. And when they arrived or when they tried to get them to the big screen, they rang hollow because the audience wasn't familiar enough. We didn't care enough. Um, you know, using the Marvel films as just one example, you've got the relationship between Steve Rogers and Peggy Carter, which, you know, we obviously f- introduced to it in, in the concept of it in um, the first Avenger. And it's nice enough. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a bit of a meat and potatoes type love affair type thing. And are they interested in each other? And aren't they? And maybe they are, but they get denied the opportunity when, when Captain America sacrifices himself. Well, come Winter Soldier, there's this beautiful, beautiful moment where Steve visits Peggy, and Peggy's in the hospital, and she has Alzheimer's, and she has a bit of an episode, and they go from talking you know, at cordially as old friends to her not knowing where she is and being confused that Steve is alive and what's going on. And there's this really beautiful moment where Steve grabs her hand and says, she, I think she says, oh, you came back. And he says, I had to. Um, you know, I still owed my best girl a dance. And you sort of went, oh, it's a lovely, you know, it's an emotional moment. But again, it's linked to the previous movie. In Civil War, Peggy passes away, and when we get, you know, he gets a text message that just says she's gone, and he goes to her funeral, and we feel his pain, and we feel his loss, and it's a sad moment. It's a really, really well done. And then he sees her in Endgame, when they go back in time, and he's there in the the, the base, the, the the army base, and he's you know fossicking around for some intel and whatnot, and he, he ends up accidentally in her office, and through the window he sees her. And it's this really, again, it's this beautiful, beautiful moment because he is the perfect avatar for the audience because we all have that person in our lives. We've all had that person or have that person. And it's this really wonderful little moment where he sees her. And it's the realisation of the life that he was denied, that he would have loved to have had, 
and the film ends up giving him that life. And it's this beautiful, this big um, 11-year spanning 20-odd film epic saga ends with Steve Rogers dancing with the woman that he loved in the life that he was denied. And it's, it's fantastic. It's perfect. They earned it. They earned it over 10 years. All these little beats and these little moments that are just wonderful. You know, Tony Stark had that moment where the cocky, brash proclamation of I am Iron Man, not really understanding the consequences of such um, hubris, uh, hubris, sorry, you know, proudly proclaiming to the world, yeah, I am, I am Iron Man. Becoming a rock star because he wants to, because that's who he thinks he needs to be. To that being his last utterance. Like, it's it's breathtaking. Like, it's... When Tony Stark snaps his fingers and dies, it's genuinely one of the great moments of all time in popular cinema. Because they earned it. It is beautiful when he has... Wonderful performance from Robert Downey Jr., but he goes from resolve to looking the bad guy in the eye and I'm going to beat you to the realisation that I'm going to die. Uh, And it is breathtaking. It is perfect. It is a great example of what Marvel do brilliantly, brilliantly well. And there is a moment in this film that the major moment they execute what quite well, which is the death of, of a major character, and they execute it really well, and it serves the film, and it, it binds Tom Holland's Peter Parker to the Peter Parkers that we're, we're now meeting again. And it's really, really well done, and it's, it's a really heartbreaking moment. But the moment I want to talk about, and the one that just got me, and, and there were a couple of sort of really, really well done emotional beats, but for me, the one that really got me was... Um, involved Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland, and uh, MJ, played by Zendaya. And if you've seen the, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man films, you'll you'll know that um, his relationship with Gwen Stacy, played by Emma Stone, ends obviously when he can't save her. She falls from the bell tower, as she does in the comic books, and he can't catch her in time. Uh, she just hits the ground, and she dies. And it's you know, it's obviously a terribly heartbreaking moment it's it's well enough done in that particular movie and it's you know it's um it's called back to the influence that had on Andrew Garfield uh, after the events of that film you know that we obviously don't see but in this continuity he continued living and it made him vengeful as he said and made him a bad person this film gave a moment that actually like people in the audience was quite a packed cinema it was like sobbing so Without wanting to give too much away, I mean, we are in spoilers, but um, during the climactic fight, uh, Zendaya's MJ is knocked from quite a height and she's falling to her death. And Tom Holland's Spider-Man sees this and goes to intercept her. He is intercepted himself. And you get a replay, effectively, of Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy falling to her death. And Andrew Garfield saves her. And it's, it's genuinely, I actually found myself getting a bit kind of like, it was really weird. I sort of uh, wasn't necessarily expecting all these bits, but it was, it's what Marvel do so well. They took a moment that was a really nice emotional beat in these other movies they didn't really have anything to do with, but they made it mean so much more. They took that little moment and made it mean everything. And it was just, it was a really, really beautiful 
you know, 10 or 15 seconds of storytelling that caps off a really significant emotional beat and emotional arc for this character that they didn't start with. But they end in the most perfect way. And as I said, like, there were cheers. Like, it was quite funny. The cinema was like a sporting crowd. And because everyone got the significance of it, everyone understood the significance of that moment, why it matters, and it was done... I will say it actually probably could have breathed a little bit more. I would have liked it to have been run a tiny bit more, like what it happens fairly quickly. You know, it's still very well done, but I would have loved for there to have been Tom Holland goes to save her, gets intercepted, he can't do it, and he's anguished, I, I can't save you, and he's thinking, I'm watching her, I'm going to watch her die. And you, we probably needed the big, you know, 12 to 6 o'clock whip of Garfield's head. Maybe he's fighting the lizard or something, and he senses she's falling and he does the big you know, spider sense and he does the whip thing and he goes and saves her and it just plays out a tiny bit longer but it was great it was absolutely outstanding it was a fantastic moment uh, chicken shits here uh, look I don't want to be too critical but um, there's probably a few things with the standalone film problem I mean these films you know can't ultimately be as grand in scale as the big team ups this film certainly attempts to be by bringing this really out there concept to the big screen the idea of the multiverse but it makes me wonder, is the multiverse too grand of a concept? Because it opens up too many avenues, too many possibilities, too many questions. It's just too... Is it too much? Because these films and these actions have consequences, and what Marvel have struggled with in the past, occasionally, is sticking to their consequences. So a character will have a big moment, or a big beat, or, you know, for instance, Thor will lose his eye, or in the next movie he just gets given an eye back. So the moment of sacrifice or growth actually doesn't really mean anything in the end because by the next movie, it's being undercut or being diluted somewhat. So when you commit to a concept like the multiverse, it, there's a lot of threads. You know, we're going to have the Doctor Strange film, um, Ant-Man, uh, Quantumania, I think is going to be a bit out there like that as well. You start throwing a lot of balls in the air. You start needing to juggle a lot of things and a lot of considerations and it becomes dangerous. I thought WandaVision didn't quite do it it just got a bit too silly. It got a bit too wrapped up in its own mystery and wrapped up in its own scale that it ultimately ended up falling flat, which was which was a bit of an issue. Um, so you do need to maintain a sense of spectacle or scale, but don't bite off more than you can chew. And that's just a little bit of a concern of mine just at the moment. Um, you think about something like The Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back doesn't end with a crazy big battle in space. It ends with a lightsaber fight. One, you know, pretty subdued between a father and a son with a big reveal. The emotional blow is the reveal. That's the explosion, you know. So bigger isn't necessarily better. More isn't necessarily better. And the, the concern just with the multiverse threads is that it, 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 you get a lot of questions, a lot of issues potentially arise. So it's something just to be, to be mindful of. Um, the climactic set piece certainly achieves what it set out to but it does so without being particularly memorable or creative. The the, the staging is um, they want to give the Statue of Liberty um, Captain America's shield, so they're reworking it and there's big scaffolding around the Statue of Liberty. That's where they have the big showdown. And you're like, yeah, okay, all right. And it kind of sums up the film. It's actually more about the emotion of what you're seeing as opposed to the execution. Um, and the scene, you know, oftentimes loses track of its participants and you know, who they, where they are, what they're doing, 
who they're paired off with. You know, that crucial sense of geography. Sometimes I found myself sort of thinking, oh, we haven't seen this guy for a bit. Oh, where's he? Okay. And that's, in a big action scene, that's one of the consequences of so many moving parts. It is very, very difficult to keep track of them and keep them all engaged. Um, You know, they do a bit with Doctor Strange where they need him to leave the film for like 40 minutes. So the way they do that is fine, but they've written themselves into a corner by thinking we can't have Doctor Strange involved because he would fix the problem. So in the same way as if we don't just if we don't just show what those villains are doing, they don't really matter at the moment until we decide to show them again. And and that's not necessarily sort of good storytelling or good filmmaking, but again, there's so much enjoyable stuff happening to kind of catch your eye or take your focus or attention that it's that it's that it's fine. So um, just as I said, just the staging and execution of that particular set piece was a bit ho hum, um, but there was enough good stuff about it to make you kind of forgive and forget. I thought, in terms of the big reveals, the big reveals of of Toby and Andrew's um, Peter Parker's, I thought that uh, Andrew Garfield's reveal was was really really good. Um, I thought it was really strong. Um, I thought Toby's was a bit less so. I thought it felt a bit underdone. Um, again, in spoilers, the concept is when Peter traps Doctor Strange in the mirror dimension, he takes his sling ring, Ned, his friend, inadvertently figures out that he can kind of control the sling ring and create portals um, just by accident. And he asks, you know, show me Peter Parker. And he creates this portal and down a long alleyway you see Spider-Man. And they yell for him, Peter, come here, Peter, come here. And he ends up coming through the portal, down the alleyway, comes, jumps through the portal and reveals himself to be Andrew Garfield. As one of the people who knew Peter Parker as Spider-Man, he was sucked into the dimension. Nice enough, really good, got a great reaction in the theatre, great, great little moment. Toby's Peter turns up in the same scene, which I thought was a bit bit unnecessary. There's this juncture of the film where... Tom Holland is kind of in isolation, he's emotionally distraught and he's on his own and they, no one knows where he is, and they can't get in touch with him, he might be dead, no one's really sure. When Toby's Peter turns up, he says he was brought into the dimension yesterday and he's been looking for Peter Parker, who's obviously all over the news as be, being, um, or you know, Spider-Man, he's looking for this kid. And you're like, yeah, yeah, cool. I would have loved for it to have played out that Andrew Garfield, his introduction is to Ned and MJ, as it is in the movie, and and, uh, Ned's mum or grandma, who's very funny. She had a nice little role. But Tobey Maguire's introduction is to Peter. So Peter, who's at his lowest ebb, who feels alone, who's dealing with grief. Um, He's isolated, as I said. He's on his own. And I would have loved for that that to be this moment of I I, I I haven't been any lower. I don't know what to do next. And just off screen you hear Peter and the big turnaround and it's Toby Maguire. It's just a little moment that I thought, I remember sitting, I was sitting there in cinema and I thought, this is a pretty big moment. And have you done this as well as you could have? Maybe, maybe not. It's fine, it works. But that way you set up as well a fun situation whereby when the group comes together again, MJ and Ned tell Peter, 
we've got someone who can help you. And Peter thinks, well, I've got someone who can help us as well. And then the fun is that they come together and realise what's happened. So that was potentially, in my mind, a missed opportunity. Not that it was bad, but as I said, I would have loved the moment of Tom Holland being really distraught, emotionally beaten down. And you just hear the voice off screen, Peter. Big turnaround, big reveal. I think it would have been tremendous. Um, Jamie Foxx has some nice moments, but his performance just doesn't quite land. His Electro from Amazing Spider-Man 2 was not good, but the departure here is really quite stark. It's not necessarily better, because it's, it's so different. He kind of plays the character like he's Motherfucker Jones from Horrible Bosses. It's just Motherfucker Jones as Electro, and it's sort of... He has some funny bits and pieces which do work, but on the whole, you're a bit like, oh, what the... It's a weird way to go with this character. Like, he's so different. And I get that you wanted him to be different because you thought the the other one was pretty bad. But yeah, I'm, not, I'm not totally convinced that this is that much better that it's worth doing it this way. Um, yeah, which, which was just a bit jarring at times. So, look, ultimately, it is absolutely worth seeing as a, as a pure celebration of these just generations of cinema um, that good, bad, or otherwise, you know, we're, we're always, um, you know, fun, engaging. You know, the guys that have played those lead roles have, have got their fans and devotees, as I said, and they they all get, you know, one last lap around Yankee Stadium. And it's, it's, really, it's really fun in that way to kind of sit there in the cinema and feel, feel what you felt watching, you know, something like Raimi's Spider-Man 2, which is, even in the age of the comic book movie, you know, that film's 17 years old now and it's just as good as any comic book movie ever made. To see and to feel those emotions and to feel or to see the payoffs and to, to, to revisit these characters, you know, at a later juncture of their life and have that be handled so delicately and deftly um, was really pleasing. Uh, and I can't stress this enough. I'm not actually sure how good of a movie it is, but it does enough stuff right for you to kind of sit back and enjoy it. Um, it is absolutely worth going to see. It is absolutely worth um, having as much fun as possible as you can with it um, because that's all it's asking you to do. It's asking you to to sit back with a big smile on your face and, and take in, um, you know, all these different, different guys that have had different spins and slants on the character come together, you know, and sort of present, I, I kind of like, I say this a lot, but like a love letter to this character, you know, and something that we probably won't ever get again with these characters, and never say never, but it's probably the swan song, this is the final thanks, see ya, goodbye um, moment for these guys, and I think that should be celebrated, because it is largely unprecedented to have this sort of thing happen on the big screen, so what this obviously creates moving forward for comic book movies will be interesting to observe, but uh, as a starting point, um, really nice so so much fun, unexpectedly emotional at times. Um, you know when you hear certain beats and cues and um, see certain things. So worth worth going to see. Um, when you do see it, if you have seen it, let me know your thoughts. I'd be really really keen to hear them. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you do enjoy this, get in touch. Uh, be sure to listen to Will and I's chat. We'll chat about this uh, obviously in the next week or so. But until then, um, yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.